Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday around Hamilton City Council, there was an, well, there was some unhappiness. Let's put it that way. There was some unhappiness after we learned, I learned about the unhappiness on social media. Uh, Councillor Narinder Nan posted that she, uh, her outrage that the vacant homes tax that looked like it was going to be a thing here in the city, it had gone through a lot of discussion. This was a tax that you would be paying an extra tax if you tax if you had an extra home that was not being used, a vacant homes tax. The idea here, let's try and tax people into using their vacant spots because that would then solve the housing crisis or help, I guess, would be the proper way to solve the housing crisis. However, this got voted down on a 6-6 motion. 6-6 is a tie. A tie is defeated. Not all the councillors were there. Uh, The mayor had a conflict of interest. She couldn't vote on this. Uh, What happened? Let's bring in Matt Francis. He is councillor for Ward 5. He was a voter against this yesterday. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I am good. So there's a lot of people saying, well, wait a second, this was a great way to get, we don't know exactly how many, but a thousand or 2000 units back onto the market potentially so people could rent them. Why would we not want to do this? Honestly, it's a, the vacant unit tax is a great idea in theory. I, I, I agree with it in principle. What I don't agree with is how we're going about this. You're going to send out a letter to 177,000 dwellings, that's all the dwellings in Hamilton, and expect 100% of people that own a place to respond. Um, That's the complicated part of this. So that takes a lot of manpower to do that. It costs a lot of money to do that. And it's confusing. I mean, you're going to send this to, I would just say, for example, seniors, and they get it, they misplace it, or they, they think it's junk, or throw it out. Or, or I mean, anybody could do that. I mean, I've had people call me, they, they got the original mail out in April, and they thought it was junk mail, they threw it out. So, and the <clears throat> apologies, I'm, I'm a little under the weather here. Um, so they're going to get this mail here, and um, if they don't declare it every year, then they get charged a tax, no questions asked. That's where I have an issue with it. Could the could the city not put some time frame in that if someone got a tax, they could then respond and say, "Oops, I didn't get my letter. Can you please?" And, and could that, or is that just adding extra manpower and extra work and extra levels that is going to cost us money? Yeah, there's certainly going to be those levers there. However, I mean, you, you, there's still going to be people that you know are confused by this or um, just choose not to declare, um, and, and it's going to be costly as a result. And uh, it showed right in the report, there are several scenarios showing uh, we don't know for sure if we're actually going to make money on this. And uh, there's scenario, another scenario showing that we might never make money on this. Um, do I think we should get markets uh, or, sorry, units on the market? Absolutely. I, I mean, that's a, a great idea. Um, I just think how this is being implemented is, is wrong on, on so many levels. And, um, you know, people are struggling right now. We're facing 142 percent tax increase and uh, this is just going to be another one of those um, hits to the levy that we don't need. But Matt, if we knew that if this has been worked on for as long as it has and you've said, you know what, it could potentially be a really good thing if done right, how is it that we in all the time that staff or whomever was working on this, we couldn't come up with, if it's a good idea, just a way to implement it? Yeah, that's the question I've been asking since day one, and I want to make it clear. I've been consistent on this issue from day one as well. We debated this last January. Uh, this started a long time ago, and, and finally it's getting implemented now. 
we had this debate back then, and uh, I've been consist- consistent since day one opposing it because of this reason. I, I thought uh, going about it this way, um, targeting 177,000 dwellings for, uh, and they've said approximately 1,100 units, uh, that's problematic. I mean, that's it seems like that's not a uh, significant enough uh, figure to go about it this way. There, there could have been alternatives that we could have done. But it's, again, I just, I look at this and I think surely there, yeah, as you say, there must have been another way. And I just can't figure out why that could not have been in all this time it's been talked about, how there could not have been a compromise reached if, again, going back to your point, if the idea were, if the idea is good, surely we have to be able to get from A to B. It, it makes no sense that there's a blockage in the middle. Yeah, I, I know. This is something that we debated a long time ago, um, 10 months ago now. And, uh, you know, and I want to touch on the what happened yesterday, too. There seems to be, you know, a lot of confusion out there with folks that uh, this is dead, it's it's done. Um, I don't think that's the case. I, I have to check procedurally, but I, I still think that it's going to go forward. It's just that um, you know, typically when we get to the vote uh, to pass the bylaws, um, generally we just, it's, it's, it's a matter of procedure. We all sort of just say yes. Um, I've never seen an instance in the year that I've been here that uh, you say no to passing a bylaw. And I spoke to uh, Councillor Jackson, who's been there for a few more years than I have, uh, and he doesn't recall a scenario like this either. So we have to go back and debate this all over again uh, and, this, and rehash it. And maybe it is, it's an opportunity then to, to put more of this on the floor, and, and, and maybe uh, some other councillors will consider amending this. One of the things that comes out of this, and it's a secondary issue, I suppose, is there were three councillors that were absent. Now, uh, Narendra Nan, who was very uh, public about this on social media after, and I'm not saying anything that she did not say publicly. Her mother is ill and she was with, with her in hospital. She was away for a good reason. Nonetheless, it does kind of say that if you're a city councillor, it shows the importance of actually being there for all the votes, whether it's on this one or something else, because something like this could have been a very different outcome if there was full attendance. Absolutely. I, I, I Listen, I'm as, as you can tell with my voice, I'm sick. I, I made it to the meeting, and, and I understand everybody's got busy schedules, everyone's got their own things, and not everyone's there for every vote. So I, I do not blame councillors at all for not being in attendance. That's uh you know, everyone's got their own things going on. Um, they we're very busy. We, we've all got busy things and, and personal matters to deal with. Uh, so I don't fault them for that. Um, but yes, uh, you know, I, but I, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I don't think they realized, uh, that this would happen either. And quite frankly, I didn't either. Um, I, I, you know, we, we made it clear that we were going to separate the vote and vote separate, separate on it 24 hours in advance. We, we let others know and, um, we did it and it just, played out that way so now we've got to go and deal with it all over again in a few weeks time there's one other thing that i'll ask you about while i'm here only because it was so stark again um the other day i wrote something in the paper about how council is kind of divided there are four councillors who seem to vote together often on one side and four who tend to vote the other way um, uh, Councillor Maureen Wilson, Ca- Councillor Cameron Kretsch, Narinder Nan, and Alex Wilson tend or, or very often vote together. And you and Councillor Tom Jackson and Councillor Esther Pauls and Councillor Mike Spatafora tend to often in controversial or contentious votes land on the same side. Kretsch and Nan were not here for this one, so but they've both expressed publicly where they would have landed. 
um, you, Jackson, Paul, Spatafora voting together again. What's going on that these are that there are these two teams on council? I, I can't explain it. I mean, I know what I'm hearing from my residents. It's it's very loud and clear that people are struggling, they're suffering. The the cost of living is is incredibly expensive for them right now, and I'm representing that as best as I can. I'm fighting to get this tax levy down to a, a reasonable amount. I oppose the 5.8% tax increase. So I go to City Hall with that in my mind. What I'm hearing from my constituents every single day, I go in there and I passionately defend what I'm hearing from my constituents. And, and uh, you know, that'd be a question for them. Maybe they're hearing uh, something different from their constituents. But do you believe that it is a philosophical difference between two sides, or do you believe that it's got more to do with geography and what the needs of your particular wards are? I, it's hard to say. It, it could be a bit of it could be a bit of everything. Um, uh, certainly, from my experience, though, I could tell you quite honestly, it's it's very loud and clear from my constituents uh, what they want. And I go out there and, and uh, serve them as, as best as I can and serve as many people uh, as possible. I try to serve every single resident of Ward 5 and, and have every single voice heard. So, um, you know, if, if it's philosophical, I'm not too sure. But uh, for me, it's, it's a matter of what I'm hearing in my community. And I go out there each and every day and uh, represent them as best as I can. Let's go back for just a minute that we have left here about the uh, the vacant homes tax. So is there in your mind then uh, a likelihood that this comes back for revisiting? And is there a likelihood that with a different execution plan that this thing could actually still happen? Yeah, I, I, I still think it's going to go forward. I, th- I think it's just a matter of uh, working out whatever procedures need to be worked out. Um, like I said, I, I will raise uh, to my colleagues the idea of, of an amended version of this because it's, this is not appropriate to send it to 177,000 homes and expect 100% of people to respond to this. That's, uh, I don't think that's very reasonable. And uh I'm just, I'm, I'm really worried about the seniors out there and the families out there that are going to just open their mailbox one day and say, the city of Hamilton is looking for hundreds or thousands of dollars that you owe them. They're going to go, for what? And maybe they thought, you know, the, the pamphlet, pamphlet that they received was junk mail. And let me tell you, when we first sent that out the first time, um, the calls and emails that we got were endless. It was relentless. It was one after the other. What is this program? They, they didn't like it. Uh, they're very, people were very confused by it. Um, so, uh, again, representing my constituents, they, they are not happy about this, and I'll uh, continue to oppose it. Um, uh, that's uh, what I'm going to do. As Matt Francis, Ward 5 Councillor, I appreciate the time today. I hope you're feeling better. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know who doesn't wish it was Christmas every day? Apparently, the Canadian Human Rights Commission. A Black Locks reporter, which covers the goings-on in Ottawa. Uh, Let me just read you the first couple lines from a report that they published. Christmas is discriminatory, says a Canadian Human Rights Commission report. Observance of Jesus' birth is a, quote, obvious example of religious bias rooted in colonialism, wrote the commission. Quote, discrimination against religious minorities in Canada is grounded in Canada's history of colonialism, said the commission's discussion paper on religious intolerance. This history manifests itself in present-day systemic religious discrimination, an obvious example 
is statutory holidays in Canada. So apparently, according to our Human Rights Commission, based on this report, Christmas is a horrible, colonial, discriminatory blight on our culture and our society. Huh. And I thought it was a fun time that people enjoyed. Well, I'm clearly not right. Um, Let me find out if Alyssa Freeman, who is a PR and pop culture expert who joins us now, if she feels also that the blight of colonialism is needed to be eradicated from the calendar. Alyssa, what do you say? Ho, 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 Scott. How are you? (laughs) You know, Alyssa, I'll answer that question by saying this. We, every once in a while, get these people who say there's a war on Christmas, and we always say, no, there's not a war on Christmas. That's, That's an overstatement. And then stuff like this pops up from official government bodies, and you go, okay, I don't know if it's a war, but there's skirmishes. You know what? I think that, listen, Christmas has been around since forever, and what are we going to do? Just, like, not celebrate it anymore? I think that there are things that even though, listen, I don't celebrate Christmas, but I enjoy Christmas. I like going downtown and looking at the windows. I like the the hustle and bustle of, uh, you know, when everybody's, you know, into the spirit and got their twinkle lights up in their stores or around my neighborhood. I can enjoy that. I think that, you know, we're always trying to redefine colonialism in this country. And it's certainly that word has been bandied about a lot lately. And I think Christmas is one of those things that really, do we have to touch Christmas? And and what, 200 years from now, we'll read, someone will read in a history book that we used to have Christmas and now we don't have it anymore. I don't know. I, I, I think that, first of all, I can't believe that somebody actually spent time on doing this, to be quite honest. Um, yeah. I never was really, when I was younger, maybe I was meant to, I, I felt like a little bit other in that I didn't celebrate Christmas and instead I celebrated Hanukkah. But I think that it is one of those times when people really do embrace each other and embrace our differences. And honestly, do we want to get more into a divisiveness between other than what's already going on right now, historically? I don't think so. I think we just need to leave this alone, enjoy it as it is, and not sort of buy into these, dare I say, sort of left-leaning uh, philosophies that we have to dismantle structures so that we're, you know, maybe, I guess it's to be all in an even playing field. But in this case, I, I disagree. But what, uh, the, okay, the idea of the even playing field, though, first of all, I don't believe that most people in this country celebrate Christmas as a religious festival anymore. I just don't. I think it's a cultural festival more than a religious thing for most. But if I, you know, as I say, you say, um, you know, you celebrated Hanukkah. I've all, I mean, if I see someone who has Hanukkah decorations or is celebrating or doing something, I'm not in some way offended by that. If someone celebrates Diwali, I'm not saying, oh man, we can't do that. That's, you know, not everyone. What's, what is wrong with A, having traditions and B, having, uh, you know, different things that people can or cannot decide to participate in? You know, I think that the crux of this paper, Scott, is that we actually have a holiday for it, that people don't work on it, that it's universally celebrated no matter who you are. I think that that is, you know, sort of the crux of this discussion paper. And I get it. But really, 
Um, and I agree with you. If you know, let's sort of celebrate all our different um, faiths. For example, you know, when I was growing up, did I even know about Diwali? Did I even know about Eid? I, I, no, we were never even really taught about it. And now the curriculum is so much more diversified that you know, kids all have sort of, I think there's like a holiday curriculum that goes over all the different holidays that other faiths celebrate during this time of year. And I think that that has certainly come a long way. And, and to say that we should get rid of one so that everybody feels better about themselves, will they really? I mean, Scott, will we all really feel better about ourselves if we don't celebrate Christmas? I don't know. And I agree with you that this is cultural. It's all about a feeling and a feeling of joyousness that hopefully we all get. I know sometimes it's a tough holiday for many, but still, I think that the overarching theme of Christmas is something that we can all enjoy whether or not we celebrate it or not. But I don't know that the tough holiday part, and you're right. I mean, we hear that, that, that it is for some people a difficult holiday, but I don't know that that's got anything to do with the tradition of Christmas, we hear that Valentine's Day is a difficult holiday for people who are single sometimes, and Mother's Day or Father's Day, if your parent is long, I mean, there's lots of other reasons besides, oh, this was what when we celebrate the birth of Jesus that would cause people maybe to have a difficult time. Listen, Scott, getting out of bed can be a tough day. That's true. You know, and you don't need a holiday for that. And I think that, you know, we're also worried about what other people think on holidays. We're just so afraid to offend one another. And I think that's where a lot of this comes comes to fruition. For example, when uh, Queen Elizabeth passed away, wasn't there some, or wasn't the York School Board here in yes. Uh, yes, Toronto? Yes, you're right. That said, oh, well, you know what? We're not going to recognize that because some kids might get triggered because maybe a mother or a grandmother or something, you know, had passed away. And honestly, that's kind of how I see this. This is all this is all about worrying too much that we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. And you know what? That's just not that's just not real. Let's just let's just like let's just live in reality for a moment. And I think to take these things to the nth degree is more about systemic destruction rather than trying to build each other up. There's something else about this too though and and some may disagree with this one, but I I don't I don't think there's a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing that we have traditions. And yes, I understand that, that my tradition may be different from yours and someone else listening may have a different tradition as well. But the, these traditions came from the people who came and were early settlers in this country. If I go over to the Middle East... I'm not going to say, you know what, uh, when you celebrate Eid, it makes me rather uncomfortable. Can you please get rid of your tradition? It, like that would be a ludicrous thing to go anywhere else or to, you know, to any other country that has a religious tradition and demand that it be changed. If you, the, the countries have traditions, all different places around the world have traditions. I don't see that a tradition, even if it's based on something from far back that's religious or cultural, I don't see that that's a bad thing necessarily, unless... You are, unless there's some tradition I don't know about somewhere that is specifically about hunting people down and doing harm to them or something, that's a different thing. That's not this. No, it's not. And I think that this is the, it's a sort of political correctness on steroids, is it not, Scott? Seems and to be. I, I think that people, I think that, you know, there are people who may have been more sensitive to this, but the more and more we hear about it, the more and more there are those who try and sort of shove it down our throats the more uh, rebellion we we have against these sort of um, these sort of philosophies, 
And I think that we all just have to take a step back. And I agree with you. When I go to another country, it, I I have to live by their rules. You know, I, I can still be who I am, but I'm not going to say don't celebrate what you're celebrating because I'm not, I, feel, I kind of feel left out. No, I'm not. And But there are those who do, you know, come to Canada and say, you know what, I don't want my kid to learn this or that. I mean, but it's not even them. I don't think sorry to interrupt Alyssa, but I don't even believe that it's that I don't believe that most of the people who are coming here as new Canadians are the ones complaining. I really don't. I don't blame them for this whatsoever. This is our human rights commission. These are more often than not, it seems people who are anticipating that someone may be offended, never bothering to ask other people if they are offended, worried that, or expecting they're going to be offended and then shocked when they're not offended, but we're going to pursue it anyway, because someone will be offended. I don't think anybody has ever used offended so much in a sentence as you did right now. So bravo. Probably not. <laughs> Hope it didn't offend you. <laughs> you. You should be, you should be writing for the, uh, writing papers for the human rights commission. Yeah. I agree with this and uh, I agree with what you're saying. And I, I think that we just have to sort of live and let live and not take a very traditional structure that people do enjoy in one way, shape or form and not try to dismantle it for for the fear of being offensive. Let me just say and, this as we run, because we got to go and I apologize that we're short on yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I have a Hindu neighbor and I have a Muslim neighbor. Both have wished me Merry Christmas in recent years, uh, if they were, if this was something that was so offensive, I don't think that that would have been the case that they would have done that. I don't, as I say, I don't believe that it's people from other cultures by and large, overwhelmingly, I don't believe they are the ones who are offended by this. I think we're anticipating offense that doesn't exist. I agree. And you know what? I actually go out of my way to say Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays because it is Merry Christmas. And it seems sort of like a bold thing to do and to not water it down with Happy Holidays. But I'm all for Merry Christmas, Scott. There you go. And Happy Hanukkah, Alyssa. Early, but you know what? Uh, That is Alyssa Freeman, uh, PR and pop culture expert. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is all kinds of talk these days, a pro and con about what happens on universities. This is not just a, an academic thing. We have all kinds of talk these days about political situations, about protests, about this, about that. Are students who are attending university happy and satisfied that they're there? We, you know, we may get into some of the other stuff over the next few minutes, but there is a new poll out, a study out that looks at whether or not, especially undergraduate students, are satisfied with what they are getting at university. It's a complicated issue for sure, but I want to bring in Glenn Keeler, who is president of the Canadian University Survey Consortium. Thank you for doing this, Glenn. Thanks for joining us. Happy to join. This is, uh, as I say, there's an awful lot of parts to this and interesting ways that you could go about asking a question like this. Are you satisfied with your university? Before we get into those specific things and some of the answers to that question. Why do you think it's important to ask this question? Is it purely so universities can adjust their whatever to make people happier? Or is there something else that goes into it as well? Well, that that is the reason that uh, the Canadian University Survey Consortium exists, is to help universities. Uh, We're just about to celebrate our 30th anniversary. So back in 94, a group of mostly people in student services area really wanted to know, are students 
happy with the services that are provided? Are there other aspects of their lives that uh, that we want to hear about so that the institutions can respond? So from, from the consortium standpoint, uh, we ask so that universities can respond to shifts that we see in uh, how students are engaging with the various things that universities do and uh, whether they're satisfied with those. So that's that's why we do this, but it also may give you some hints about other changes because it's not just magic that students suddenly change. Mm. Uh, they exist in the larger society and as society changes, so does their interaction with the particular part of that society that is university. How satisfied were university students in 1994 with what they were getting? Uh, it's really hard to directly compare that, uh, in part because in 94, we started with a handful of institutions I see. Uh, participating. And, you know, we're now up to the our most recent press releases about our middle years student survey, which uh, involved 29 different institutions. We shifted from doing the process where we just included, to be honest, any student who would walk up and fill out the piece of paper to uh, now we segment it into first years, middle years and graduating students. Uh, so it's hard to, to directly uh, measure those. We've also added questions to the surveys. The, the press release that we uh, issued not so long ago, uh, earlier this week to be uh, exact, uh, noted that between the last four of our middle year student surveys, student satisfaction uh, levels with institutions seems to be dropping in a general sense. Uh, so they're, they're less satisfied than they were three years ago and six years ago. Um, so those, those numbers have been dropping uh, and at a fairly steady rate. It's not a disaster, but it, it's enough that institutions should be concerned that students are perhaps not seeing the value that they think they should be getting when they pay their tuition. All right, let, let's start very generally then, because when you say that, and, and you, I'm sure, have dove deep into these numbers, having done them, is there an area, Is there are there a couple areas, is there something broadly that is changing? Is there something broadly where you're seeing that dissatisfaction growing? You know, it's funny because it doesn't show up uh, in in the details as much as it shows up in the macro level. So we ask a, a question about whether students would recommend their institution to a friend or family member who's looking for post-secondary experience. That's a pretty classic net uh, recommender score. It's used in all sorts of industries. Uh, and you, what you do with that is there are students who are going to say, absolutely, I would totally recommend this to somebody else. Uh, there are those who say, not on your life. I would not recommend this to somebody else. And then there's the people in the middle who are uh, what I sometimes call the meh group. They <laughs> they uh, might recommend the institution, but they would not be the people who go out there and unprompted start telling other people about how great their institution is. And what you do is you subtract the people who are going to unprompted go out there and say negative things about the institution from those who say positive things about the institution and you get a number and you hope that number is positive, that you've got more positive word of mouth going on than negative. Uh, and between the last two surveys, those numbers flipped where now universities are in, in the negative side where I believe it's negative 
uh, at the moment. And uh, what that means is there's more detractors out there than there are recommenders. So that was interesting to us to see that shift over the last few administrations of this particular survey, which happens for the middle year students, it happens every three years. So that gives us some time. Um, interestingly, the previous administration of this was in the year 2020. And we know uh, that that uh, was the year of the pandemic, but uh, our survey actually occurred before the pandemic. So we can't directly say that it was caused by the pandemic. Something has been going on as we get back to business as normal at universities that has really led students to feel like they, they really couldn't in all honesty, just walk up to a stranger and say, I have to tell you about my great university. It, it, there are many things, and again, uh, we are going to take a couple of minutes here in, in a bit and go through some of these things because there's so many, as I say, so many areas that you could touch on in this. The, this survey is very long, very in-depth, but as I was looking through it, Glenn, one of the numbers, and there are many, as I say, there are many, but one really jumped off the page at me here, and it was uh, asking whether a university degree is worth the cost. So these are people who are in university going through it, being asked, is it worth your while, worth your money, worth your time, I guess. Only 15% strongly agree. 36% agreed. But even the fact that we are below or right at, I guess, if you count the agree and the strongly agree, only half are saying that it's worth the cost. That to me is stunning. Yeah, it is a little surprising, although... You know, that number has drifted down over the years, but uh, it, it's always been a bit of a toss up, especially for the middle years group to say that it's worth the cost. And you've got some different dynamics going on. Uh, costs have been going up for students, despite tuition freezes in some provinces. Uh, uh, tuition has risen for students over the last uh, few years. Um, but you also have a general sense of things being more expensive all the time. Tuition is only one factor in, in the cost of a university education. Uh, you know, there's other things. These students have to find places to live. Well, those are more expensive. They have to eat. That's more expensive. And they're also foregoing some things. So if you're full-time at a university, you're not out there working full-time. And so you're your, it's a sort of lost income, a lost revenue stream for them. And so that's part of the cost as well. And at this moment, uh, students have, have sort of are sitting 50-50 saying, well, I'm not 100% I'm not sure this is the cost. It's interesting, this, the response to this question changes depending on which group of students you're looking at. So first year students are going to be more favorable towards the cost and final year students are going to be more favorable towards the cost. Okay, okay. But these middle, the middle year students are going to be the ones who uh, really feel it because they're they're not quite seeing the end of the process yet, uh, and they're a little bit beyond that sort of enthusiasm at the beginning. They're in the thicket right now, and it's not exactly the fun spot to be in. Exactly. So when you're looking at the whole idea of university, there are a whole bunch of factors to this. There is obviously the education that is be, that would be what we would think of with university, but there is life university life as well. Are both things counted in this survey? We do uh, ask students about whether they participate in and what they think of uh, some of the 
the uh, sort of more social side of, uh, of university. Uh, it's hard to measure that because uh, at different universities, it may or may not be the responsibility of the university organization to put that together. Uh, so it might be that your student services areas are putting together some of those social things, but often it's the student associations or the student unions who are the drivers of the social side uh, of university life. And, and so when, we try and, and measure things we we can do things about. And, and, and looking at, and again, as I've even asked this, I found this question uh, in the survey. And again, I am sort of surprised at some of the numbers here. Maybe you're not having done this many years, but uh, participated in student clubs, only 15%. Uh, participated in on-campus student recreational and sports programs, only 13%. Only 9% attended a home game of a university athletic team. Boy, uh, very different from the American experience, I'm guessing, in this one. That doesn't make it better or worse, but it's a small number who seem to be participating in things the universe, not necessarily things with university life. They're probably going to parties and hanging out with friends, but things the university is providing. It's a pretty small number. It is a relatively small fraction uh, that engage in those things. And I, I, I can't prove this, but uh, my sense is that that, that fraction is declining somewhat. Um, obviously, the pandemic really messed things up with, uh, with public events and the larger scale gatherings. Uh, those were all very difficult. And so I think we're still crawling out of that hole that uh, the pandemic created. But it is, uh, Canada is quite different than the states where social life uh, is one of the key factors that students in the U.S. look at. Uh, I happened to be at a meeting of institutional research people from uh, post-secondaries in Alberta at, at the moment. And we had a conversation this morning where uh, the observation was that U.S. students will look at the rankings and look at uh, all sorts of factors in their institutions. In Canada, students tend to say, well, does my local institution have the program I want? And that is the key decision maker for them. And uh, they don't really look at uh, things like what, what's student life like at that institution? They really want to know about degree and if it's available locally or if they have to travel further away to get it. There is another thing that I've wondered about recently with university campuses, and maybe some will agree. I think a lot of people will. Maybe some will disagree. But these are complicated times, and university campuses seem to be complicated places these days. There are there's political activism, and people have to sometimes walk on eggshells. And it's it's it doesn't seem to be. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't on a university campus back in the '60s or '70s, but it seems that university campuses are far more difficult to navigate these days without getting yourself, as I say, in some tricky spots or, or caught in, you know, we, we've been seeing on, on campuses all over the place, things with the, just very recently, the Israel Hamas situation, very complicated. You think that contributes at all, just the, the political stuff that goes on on university campuses, does that contribute to anything here? Well, we don't measure that directly, but there is one thing that we do measure directly. We ask students, uh, various things about their experience and about uh, things like their ability to manage stress. Mm. Well, that number has been going down. Students are reporting that they're not uh, finding themselves able to manage the stress of university life. Well, where does that stress come from? It comes from the formal activity of university life. Being a student has an inherent stress. You're, you're learning new things. You have to prove that you've new, learned the new things, all of that 
happens, but there's also the sort of environmental or social stress that happens. And all of that, that uh, political conflict, whether it's those specific issues or other issues that, that uh, come up, create stress on campus. And if students feel that they are less able to manage that stress, I can imagine that that reduces their sense of, uh, uh, of being able to engage in, in the life of being a student on our campuses these days. And as you talk about that again, I just found on the on the survey where this question was, and in that same box, and we only have time for one more here, but this I found so interesting. You ask people, I am willing to. The, the question was posed, I am willing to put a lot of effort into being successful at university. Ninety three percent say yes, great number. Ninety three percent say sure, I'll put in the effort to be great. In the same question, I have good study habits. Only 68% of people, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how those two jive that I think, hey, I really want to put in the time to be great, but my study habits are kind of stinky. It seems like a very funny contradiction. It, you find those all over the place in, in the uh, survey where uh, we ask about how many hours students are putting in outside of the classroom. Um, and we also ask them uh, what they think their grade average is. Um, and it's really interesting that there, there's not a huge connection between how many hours you put in outside of the classroom and what you think your average is. Uh, the, the phenomenon of feeling like you're better able to handle things than the actual uh, skills and abilities you uh, have gained to handle things aren't 100% connected. It's a, it is a fascinating, fascinating survey. People can, uh, people can find this. I know it's, uh, it's available online. They can, uh, they can look it up. It is the CUSC, Canadian University Survey Consortium, uh, 2023 Middle Years Students Survey Master Report. And it is, uh, it is an interesting read for sure. No question about that. Glenn Keeler is the man behind it. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.